Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail... Hundreds of thousands of protesters hit the streets of France to rally against the raising of the pension age from 62 to 64. And they really know how to protest. Unions say more than three million people took to the streets in a nationwide general strike. Bordeaux's city hall burning. The entrance to the more than 200-year-old building going up in flames. France on fire. Teachers, train drivers and oil refinery staff from across the country are among those who have joined the strikes. President Macron says it has to be done to prevent the collapse of the pension system. Well, in New Zealand, about 880,000 pensioners, that's people over the age of 65, have just had a pay rise. But with that has come a new push for an overhaul of our pensions, including this from economist Shamabil Yaakob. Means testing, yep. raise the age over time, gradually over a period of 10 years, and close to, the gap between what? super what, and wealthy. What are you going to raise the age to? 70. 70. So why are the French so furious about their retirement age going to 64? Well, it's not all as it seems. New Zealand journalist Seamus Kearney lives in Lyon. So this would be the standard retirement age in France, so the legal age at which somebody could retire and get the full pension. Okay, so this uh, would be increased from 62 uh, up until 64, and this would be gradual, so this would be brought in by by 2030. Uh, so, so really, it's about you know France's work-life balance really in question, and, and that's really a sacrosanct. A subject here in France. Also, you know, we have here in France the 35-hour working week. But actually, one of the things is uh, we have a lot of uh, special arrangements for different sectors in France. So, for example, public sector workers, uh, people who are working in jobs where uh, it's considered to be very strenuous, both physically and mentally. Uh, there have been lots of options to retire early. So while we talk about 62, lots of sectors, for example, it can go even as low as 52 to retire. That's going to go for a lot of those special groups. We look at the French people a, a bit jealously because they've got the 35-hour week and also because they've got this low pension age. But it also seems a no-brainer, really, that France cannot afford it. And that, you know, Macron is saying that if something doesn't change, it will lead to a collapse of the whole system. Yeah, and I think that's a debatable point if you talk to a lot of the critics and a lot of the experts, even some you know, top economists have come out and actually said, well, actually, is it that urgent? Is it true that the pension system would collapse? It's true that we are looking at a very high figure when, when we compare to OECD figures or EU figures when it comes to how much we're spending in terms of GDP on pensions. So France, uh, it is highest, 14.5% of GDP on that. Uh, but, you know, in the European Union, uh, Italy, for example, is 15.9, Greece, 15.7, France is third, and then we have Austria about 13%, Germany's about 10%. In contrast, our figure is 4%, and I'll be talking to the Retirement Commissioner about that later in the podcast. The OECD average is 7.7%. 
Uh, it's true. The government has been has been saying that we have an aging population. Uh, they say that you know over half a century we've gone from having four taxpayers paying for every pensioner for those retirements. And that's come down to about 1.7 taxpayers. And, you know, the uh, the birth rate in France, for example, the government points to that. Even just for, for last year, it was 19,000 fewer births in France. That's the lowest figure in 75 years. But there are some economists who actually project the figures. Uh, one in particular uh, very famously came out and contradicted the government figures. Uh, and he was saying that things would balance out in the years to come, after 2030, etc., up until 2040. Now, New Zealand has a universal pension. Hit 65 and you get the money. Not so in France. Uh, one of the pieces of the reform, which was actually uh, you know, agreed to before, was actually uh, increasing to 43 the number of years that you need to have worked to qualify for a full pension. So that's 43 years. Uh, that's enormous. If you look at some other countries, you know, it goes as low as 30 years, 35 years that you have to uh, have contributed to the system. So it's really the, this, it's really when you look at the detail. Uh, and in France, when you have all of these special arrangements for people who work in strenuous jobs, even mothers, mothers of children, they, they get uh, benefits, they have advantages as well when it comes to calculating the pension rate. Well, I mean, I tried to... to kind of understand the French system and it is so complicated compared with New Zealand's and one of the things that sticks out to me is that right now under the current system women, they are not equal to men, They, on average they get paid a lower pension and on average they start receiving it later than men That's right so, so women who have not worked all of those requires quarters and that's a big question that's been raised by the unions over here criticism of this reform the government says that it has taken that into account but the unions are saying just absolutely not enough but as you say and even me i've i've looked through every time i see a media report where we look at the comparisons when it comes to retirement ages when you actually go to the official websites and read the the minute detail uh, it is very, very difficult to compare. It, it's not actually as uh, as attractive as it would seem when you're just from the outside looking in. Uh, Anti-democratic, and voilà, je, je proteste. It's very difficult to get across the figures. Everyone's looking at their own situation. I got online to look at my uh, pension benefits and how it's going to look for me, and it's very complicated. Many people give up. They don't look at this. And I think it also just comes down to, as I say, um, this question about the work-life balance here in France. Uh, it's enshrined in the culture. And some people would say, I, you know, on one protest that I was reporting on, somebody said to me, well, why not spend so much of our GDP on pensions? Why not spend that amount on mm. people who have actually constructed and built our country? Who is saying that we shouldn't be spending so much so much GDP on pensions. It is interesting, though, that so many people are motivated enough to get out and protest. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, and, and they get quite violent, don't they? A violent face-off from riot police. As police storm down the streets, some demonstrators lay curled on the ground. Well, this question of the violence, uh, people who I speak to who have been turning out 
every week since January. So we're now up to the 11th, uh, you know, rolling strikes uh, and protests. A lot of them say that the violence is actually on the fringes. So we talk about uh, anarchists and troublemakers and thugs who are actually taking advantage of the division, of the tension, and they're coming out and they're turning, you know, at least the fringes of the demonstrations. They're having these running battles with the police. You know, we've had these these certain days of, of nationwide strikes, but we've had these spontaneous demonstrations as well. Uh, just groups of people spontaneously demonstrating. It's very hard to predict where they're going to happen. Uh, I was on the way to my gym on my bike, you know, crossing a bridge and just suddenly found myself in this cloud of tear gas. Hmm. Uh, totally hit me in the face, almost, you know, um, rolled off in front of a bus. Uh, my eyes stinging, couldn't breathe, couldn't see. And I was in the middle of riot police charging protesters. I'm in Paris with uh, a view of the iconic Eiffel Tower. But here's a scene that offers a less romantic vision of the city. Heaps of trash piled on the city streets. The garbage has not been picked up in Paris for over a week. And we have had, you know, queues at petrol stations because the uh, petrol company workers are on strike. I read one senior economist was quoted that the pension in France offered good social protection, high average relative incomes and low relative poverty. And if you pair that with the 35-hour week, I mean, it does, I feel envious. It does seem like France looks after its workers a lot better. But what you know you know, coming from New Zealand and living there. Do people in France have a better retirement life, do you think, than, say, New Zealand? I would say they probably do. And uh, I think, you know, that's why they hold on to it so tightly. And they say that that envy that we have of other countries, they say that they've fought hard for that. Uh, don't forget that we pay high charges uh, every time that our, our payslip comes and it's not just you know tax on revenue so we we pay an individual charge uh, for collective training in france we pay an individual char charge into two different retirement funds one's a very basic retirement fund which will give you about 50 percent of your previous earnings and then you have a top-up fund and that depends on the sector you work in and then of course that's not even including the private pension funds but it's true that people have worked things out. Uh, and I saw one figure there saying that, you know, people can earn in their pensions around about 70% of what they would have earned as a worker. New Zealand's Retirement Commissioner Jane Wrightson agrees our situations are not comparable. That's a terrible problem that President Macron has got. Their pension costs are nearly 14% of GDP, which is very large. Mm. Um, ours is only 4 and we're projecting only to increase it to 6.4 by 2061. So we're on a very different scale here. The other thing to notice, I think, too, or to note, is that the French are really heavily reliant on state pensions. They don't have private saving schemes, so they don't have a two-tier or even a three-tier 
uh, mature retirement um, approach. So when you're talking about um, messing around with, in effect, their only source of um, older age income, you can, you can see why the argument gets vigorous. Is it fair to even compare New Zealand with France? No, it's not. Again, our costs are much, much lower than theirs. We have a stable system. And as long as the system is uh, remains stable and any changes are well flagged, then um, trust and confidence in the system remains, you know. There is some chatter that everybody's putting the age up internationally, and that's not true either. About 70% of the OECD countries have a pension age of 65 or lower now, and it, th- those that are putting it up or talking about putting it up, because some have already retreated from that, um, the majority are only talking about moving the age up to 65 over the next four decades. So, you know, current predictions are, are suggesting that by the 2060s, say, um, 60% of OECD, OECD countries will still have pension ages of 65 or below. So New Zealand is the top end of the rankings. We're about average. 65 is where people are heading. There's a couple of countries who say they're heading up to 66, 67, including Australia. Um, But if you think about Australia, they've got a really successful private savings scheme, compulsory um, uh, savings, all the rest of it. So it's a mature system. When we talk about it in New Zealand, we have to understand that we only, in effect, have um, a two-tier system. We have um, private savings and super, not a compulsory private savings scheme at that. Um, And the other thing I think that's really important is that 40% of people over 65 now have virtually no other income than New Zealand super. Mm. And another 20% have only got a little more. So you're talking about 65% of the population who are surviving on a a, a modest income. And I was going to ask you a bit more about that, but... If you're saying, you know, our the cost of New Zealand's pension is roughly 4% of our GDP going up to 6%. 6.4, uh, 6.5, yeah. Okay. And you say it's stable, our, the whole pension system is stable. W- why is there talk of putting it up to 67? I think it's because the... The data and the information around this is is um, not very well understood, and it's something my office is working on quite carefully now to say, well, these decisions are for the politicians, absolutely, um, and these decisions are for ones, uh, ones for citizens to think about quite hard, but we need better information. So the dominant narrative at the moment is that, you know, is the wealth, wealthy boomer narrative. Everybody's in a, in a mortgage-free house. Everybody's got uh, made massive capital gains. Everybody's got lots of savings, and they're all off on European river cruises. Um, but that dominant narrative is only is only about half of the 65s, and to be honest, that half can't do European river cruises all the time either. Mm. And that that's going to be dropping. So if you're looking forward, which is what you're doing when I mean, you're thinking about um, changing the age or some of the settings, then you need to look at the other narratives as well. Um, and for a balanced policy discussion, ask who are we hurting and would we take additional policy steps to um, address those cohorts? And what's really clear from our research is that the people that would get hurt by an age increase would be women, Māori and Pacifica. Mm. Really clear. Every piece of research we've done and other people have done, it says that. So, you know, while any government has a right to do what it wants when it, when it has the authority, um, 
organisations like mine uh, need to need to be able to say yes, but yes, but have you thought of this, and is there a better way? And you think that there is a better way because you're saying that we need to keep the retirement age at 65. It's my view that there is no need to change at this point. You know, the the first thing people generally start off with is saying we can't afford it, and the answer to that is who says. And the answer to that question is, well, you know, everybody, the government. And we go, I go, well, this is about government spending choices, and government makes spending choices all the time. So there's no evidence at this point that we can't afford it, and its proportion of um, GDP is, as I've just said, compared to France, you know, Mm -hmm. going up to 6.5% may be quite modest. The next question is, who's it going to hurt? as I say, Māori Women Pacifica, and manual labour jobs, whose bodies are wearing out uh, by the early mid-60s. So you have to think about this and ask, are there other policy things that should happen if we intend to put it up? Um, If we intend to put it up, then it has to be on a really long runway, uh, like 20 years, because people have to have trust and confidence in the system you know, um, otherwise things get really difficult. Um, I, I get upset when I talk to younger people who blithely say the pension won't be around when I retire. And I say, why not? Um, of course it will be. It may be in a slightly different form. It might be better. It might be worse. I don't know, but it will be. And these are the kind of things that citizens and voters need to think about. You know, what kind of country do we want? Mm. Do we want a country where, at the very least, there's a version of a guaranteed minimum income uh, for people who are getting past their working years? You talk about people who've done manual labour for all or some of their working lives whose bodies just can't take any more work when you know around 60 to 65 is there any way that you could split that group of people off or is that just too complicated well that's the conundrum right so the current system is very simple to administer basically when you turn 65 and you satisfy the residency requirements then you get the super very good very simple system to administer relatively low uh, costs and on top of super there is a couple of there is the means tested accommodation supplement which helps you if you are really poor and you've got high accommodation costs so that kind of system that says maybe there's a baseline pension and then maybe there are add-ons for those that need it is probably the headspace that makes more sense. Um, you do want a simple system to administer because otherwise you're then setting up an entire you know, d- further division of bureaucrats trying to argue with people who are trying to gain the system. Mm. Um, so it's not easy to think about this, but it's also not impossible. And I don't think that kind of thinking has been done in depth properly yet. If National get into power later this year, they are going to, I know it's a long way down the track, but they they say that they intend to lift the age of eligibility to 67. Essentially, it's a gradual increase in the retirement age. We're giving people 15 to 20 years and lots of advance notice and, and lots of adjustment time. Um, and, you know, it's the right thing to do ultimately economically. You know, we have a a rising cost of that system. We also have people that are every decade people live another one and a bit years longer. Uh, and so, you know, and many other countries have already moved to 67 already. So I would be saying to them, OK, good, here are some of the outflows of that decision. Are there things you could and should be thinking about if and when you put that legislation through? Looking at the other side of things, you know, people's willingness to work to the age of 65 and beyond, because you actually turned 65 in January, I believe. 
Oh, well, that's mean. <laughs> I'm <It's> sorry. Snooping. <laughs> but it's <laughs> do you do you have any desire to retire? No, but I have a desire to slow down slightly. Um, yeah. So I'm going to go down to four days a week later this year and try and get my life a bit more, you know, broadly centred. And having this job, which is a great privilege, um, has allowed me to reflect on this. You know, when you're running an executive career as I was and just running through life as you do, you don't tend to think about it that much. And it is the old story. If I knew then what I knew now, I would have planned things a bit differently. <laughs> is that right? I won't ask you if, you know, you could afford to retire now. But but obviously... Short answer, no. Short answer, no. Oh, OK. So, so I don't want to. Um, I can't really afford to retire yet. I need to work for at least another uh, three or four years, I think. You know, when I was looking around at these stories from France, there's a very interesting clip where a woman at one of the protests says... Do you want 64-year-old nurses to care for you in the hospital, Mr. Macron? What I want is to prepare the end of people's careers. What you are touching upon, which is true, is that people have to work a bit longer because they start working a bit later. Well, we have we have we do. plenty we of 64-year-old nurses. <laughs> and we're just told recently that we have a heck of a lot of older GPs as well. So we have a very important older population of people but I suppose the question is that willingness to work beyond 65 well, that's where it becomes very interesting for employers, you know, particularly with the labour market shortages at the moment. It's never been a better time to be an older person looking for employment. You know, five years ago, I would have been a bit doomy and gloomy and talking about, you know, um, retraining and all the rest of it. And now, if you want to work, you will generally be able to find it. Um, and employers, I think, along with dealing with the um, requirements of their millennial staff, which is d- different as well, um, will just need to be thinking about how they want to keep their senior workers because there's, you know, a great deal of IP, generally speaking. Um, there's excellent work ethic attached with older people because we all grew up knowing we had to work hard. Um, and if the flexibility around um, their needs is taken into account too, there's no reason people can't stay in the workforce for a while. The pension age is, is not the retirement age. It's just when you start getting um, some economic choices. And are there many people who choose not to take their pension because, you know, they can afford not to? I asked that question as well because I thought particularly the people who said push the age up, I don't need it, bloody bloody blah, wouldn't be um, claiming the pension, but they are. And the fact is, it's in effect, it's an entitlement, right? So you're allowed to do it, so you will. Um, you know, there's an organisation that set itself up saying, you know, give me your super and I'll, and I'll uh, give it to charity. But the short answer is most people claim it. And most people, 60% of people, need it. And beyond that, it's really only the 1%, the, you know, the, the, the wealthy people who, who kind of um, also can dominate the conversation, the people that really don't need it. But they're, they're 1% of the population, and it's not the, the story of the average uh, pensioner. It's not something that you take much notice of until, until you need to. You, you don't really take any notice of it. That's right. And if you think, just occasionally you go, what, what will my life be like in 10 years' time? And what will it be like in 20? And if you, if you blanch at the very prospect, 
you know, it might be your little wake-up call. If you go, no, actually, my, my, my pathway's looking okay and I could do a few tweaks here and there, that's, that's good. But it's just well worth thinking about, if you can, in the middle of all the pressures of the day-to-day and the crises of the week and all the rest of it, every once in a while thinking, what do I want my life to look like? That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Flo Wilson and produced by Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Seamus Kearney and Jane Wrightson. Kakite anō.